Now the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, May 11th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Maserlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of the Federal Drive, this bill could compensate veterans exposed to radiation at a Nevada test range. Plus, this NASA project really shows the need for supply chain security. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, the Office of Personnel Management will take a new approach to close what it says is a gender-based pay gap in the federal workforce. OPM wants to bar agencies from using candidates' salary history to determine their pay in government. Advocacy groups laud the efforts from OPM. Others say issues for federal pay run much deeper. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman has more. And Drew, tell us why this is coming up now at this point in history, and they're really talking about someone's salary history, and how does that figure into the whole equation? This, Tom, is a couple years in the making. The initial requirement under President Biden's executive order on diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility asked asked OPM to look into pay equality or pay inequities within the federal workforce. And this is something that OPM has addressed in its strategic plan as well. They're looking at ways to basically close that pay gap that exists between men and women for similar similar positions within the federal government. The idea with the salary history and why agency why OPM says agencies shouldn't be using that when determining pay for new hires is because there is this historic separation between white men disproportionately making up more senior level positions within the federal government or in the private sector as well. So coming into government they're they might have a little bit more of an advantage when agencies are setting pay. So if you remove that from consideration, this can make a little bit more of an even playing field for those who might have been disadvantaged in the past. All right. And what do they know about the size of this purported gender pay gap? I mean, the question is, if a man and a woman are in the government, say they're both in for 12 years, both at the GS-14 level, both doing similar work, do they make different salaries? if they entered the government at the same time with the same level of experience? That's a good question. The gender pay gap that exists within the federal government really more comes from historic perspective. So because white men for a longer period of time have made up levels that are higher on the general schedule pay system, that means they've had more years of experience, more time to get to those higher pay levels, while others disproportionately make up uh, lower sections of the general schedule that includes women and people of color, whether or not they are male or female. So if you're looking at numbers, there was a 5.6% pay gap between men and women on average in 2022, if you look at the federal government as a whole. And that's compared with 16% in the private sector, where you might see a little bit more flexibility in the way that employees are paid. Okay, so I guess, you know, the proper form of hiring should take care of this over time. Maybe it would take another decade or so. And so what is OPM proposing? What are their new regulations all about? New regulations say that agencies cannot use previous salary history of a job candidate who is entering the federal government for the first time. So this applies actually to both candidates for federal jobs that are entering the federal government or those who maybe were in in a federal position, left the government and now are now coming back. So the question is, you know, where do you look instead? 
to determine pay for new employees coming into government. And that's really going to come down to assessing skills and other qualifications of these job candidates. But doesn't the GS system pretty much dictate what you're going to get paid? There's a table there that is publicly accessible. And if you come in as a GS-12, you're going to make within a certain range and that's it. Right. It's a matter of you know, there is a bit of a range when determining someone's skill level or their qualifications for a position when they first come into government. And this is a matter of, you know, looking at their actual qualifications for the role rather than maybe what they were paid for a similar position, maybe in the private sector. So it's just looking more at skills. That's the idea that OPM is taking here rather than you know, how they were sure. compensated or how they were valued. So in other words, if someone comes for a job and they have a certain level of experience, you don't know what they were earning, but you figure they're about a GS-13 level three, and that's what you offer them without regard. Of course, they might have been making $300,000 outside of government, so they're coming in at a cut. But whatever it is, you can't bias it by knowing what they earned earlier and offering them low or more. I mean, it cuts both ways. Right. And there is also a question of agencies, because they can't ask job candidates for their salary history during that process, you know, candidates could potentially still offer that information during a job interview or during the hiring process. So the idea with the regulations here is to really just across the board, take that out of the picture. And notably, there is an exception to this. If a job candidate has a competing job offer, agencies can then make a counteroffer. So in that case, they can use the salary history. But in those instances, they still have to consider at least one other factor when setting their pay. And everything OPM proposes has a chorus of people that are both for and against it. And there have been advocates of not having salary histories part of the discussions for some time now. They must be thrilled. You could say that, Tom. The Department of Justice Gender Equality Network, they are a group of employees who advocate gender equality through pay and other workforce areas. And, you know, once they knew that OPM was kind of planning to propose these regulations sometime last year, they wrote to OPM calling for a full ban of the use of salary history rather than just banning agencies for asking for it. So their response to this proposed regulation that really encompasses that idea and takes a bit of a stronger view on the topic was very much welcomed by them. And then the pay system itself has been under some level of scrutiny and critique now for a couple of decades, even though it seems impervious to being changed. But some of those being talked about at all? There is a a little bit of a deeper issue here with federal pay, at least according to a lot of people who are familiar with the topic, even though agencies under these proposed regulations would not be able to look at salary history for those first coming into government. The question is also of, you know, what if there is a current federal employee who's up for a promotion, up for uh, just moving up on the general schedule? And in those instances, you can look, of course, at salary history or where they were on the GS scale previously. So I think there it does bring up a question of a bigger potentially need for reform. There's also, you know, the way that uh, many employees move throughout their careers goes back and forth between the private and public sector uh, and you know, advocates of pay reform for the federal government have said that the general schedule doesn't really adapt to this more modern approach to how people's careers are are playing out. 
Sure. So the rules are out. And what is the timetable here for commenting, finalization, and then going ahead with it if they do? Those proposed regulations from OPM are going up on the Federal Register today, and anyone will have 30 days to offer comments or feedback on the proposal from OPM. I imagine there's going to get a lot of comment. You know, there's HR societies and trade associations of personnel and what they used to call personnel, now they call human capital types of operators. So I think they're going to get a lot of comments on this. There are a lot of people who care a lot about this issue. And I, you know, it'll be interesting to see how, uh, how people respond to these, these proposals. And by the way, discrimination in pay based on gender or any other factor other than the person being qualified is already verboten, correct? Correct. Yeah, that is, you know, illegal, But of course, there are some underlying factors. I think that's where OPM is trying to get at here that affect that. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thank you. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, this NASA project really shows the need for supply chain security. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Supply chain cybersecurity might seem like an abstraction until you were, say, NASA and building new ground stations to support the multi-billion dollar Artemis to Mars program. All those antenna signals, data processing, communication links. At the recent ACT-IAC conference on emerging technology, I caught up with Jenna Garrahi program manager for space communications and navigation, and she told me why supply chain cybersecurity and security really matters. We have multiple ground stations all over the world, and um, these are the two new additions. So we have a ground station already in Canberra, Australia, and another one in Madrid, Spain. Um, So we'll be adding South Africa and another ground station in Australia um, into the portfolio. And what do these ground stations consist of? What do they look like? These are not like a 10 by 10 fenced in area with a little pole in the middle. Sure, 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 sure. So um, it's a, a normal ground station. It's got um, several antennas, uh, you know, big operations building, making sure that we're tracking our satellites. You know, we provide 24 by 7 coverage of COM to the International Space Station and, you know, hundreds of satellites every day. So these new ground stations will just augment that portfolio. So these are antennas, they're computers, they're wiring, and there's a lot of software. Yes, everything, uh, everything from ground uh, Guards, gates, and guns to servers and um, dishes and everything in between. And these are manned 24 hours, or are they automatic and just kind of run themselves? So we've got a, a good mix of both. Some of our ground stations are operated by humans 24 hours a day, seven days a week, actually on the facility, and some of them we control remotely. And you expressed some cybersecurity supply chain issues there. So you've got construction, you've got, as you say, all these different, you know, computers to commodes and this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. What are the big concerns? Sure, sure. We want to make sure that the products that we're using, the hardware and software that's going into building these ground stations are safe and secure. That at the end of the day, that we're making sure that um, our satellites are, are operating as efficiently and safely as possible. And that also, you know, when we have crewed missions, that our astronauts are absolutely safe and we've mitigated risk to the greatest extent possible. And these ground stations communicate bi-directionally. So they go to 
the spacecraft as well as get information down from it. That's right. That's right. Um, we are making sure that uh, COM can go up to the satellites and they're, you know, they're out there doing uh, science experiments and, and um, you know, looking for various things that we've directed it to. We've got equipment far out into the galaxy that's sending back data and then, and then we get to analyze it when it comes back down. And let me ask you just a technical question. You said there's a series of ground stations because you have to be able to reach the spacecraft or wherever it might be around the globe. Are they all synchronized? Are they all seeing and doing the same thing at the same time, or do they operate independently? Yeah, they they most of them operate independently. We actually have, um, for the Deep Space Network, is a, a fantastic example of uh, advanced technology that NASA has created. Um, we have three ground stations in the world. We talked about earlier, uh, one in Pasadena, California, um, up at Goldstone, uh, one in Canberra, Australia, and one in Madrid, and they are equidistant around the globe. They used to operate all at the same time, um, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, but now we have it so that uh, whatever one is currently in the sun is the one that's currently operating, So that, um, and then they hand over to the next ground station. So we've been able to actually uh, create a lot of efficiencies with technology by handing off to other ground stations. So let me just postulate then, there is a signal coming from the spacecraft. It is received by an antenna, which converts it into a signal that is then processed by computers. Yep. So the weak or the links that you worry about then are that actual link between the antenna, you know, which is a something that produces uh, induction, right? And then that current goes to a computer. So that critical point there seems like the most dangerous area for supply chain. So we're actually, we're concerned about it uh, cradle to grave. So making sure that the when the signal is coming down, that we get a pure signal uh, into our antennas. And then once it's being processed on the ground, that it's able to get to the proper location um, safely and securely. So making sure that the computer equipment that's processing these signals are as safe and secure as possible, um, making sure that all of our patches and updates are completed so that um, we make sure the integrity of the information is available at all times. Right. So there are two dangers. And one that a signal or a piece of intelligence could be purloined, just filtered out by someone and sent somewhere it shouldn't be sent, or that something could be sent to it that could harm the mission or give you the wrong sense of what's going on with Artemis. So we make sure, especially with a program like Artemis, that all of our that all of our information is encrypted, right? We want to make sure that the data coming down is the integrity is kept as much as possible, and um, that we're able to have communications with our astronaut without interruption. So um, that's why we have also multiple ground stations and multiple satellites to, um, if something were to happen to one of our ground stations, we could fail over to, to another asset to make sure that we keep that comm constantly going. We're speaking with Jenna Garrahy. She's network integration manager for NASA's space communications office. And what is your strategy for supply chain security then and construction of these new ones and, I guess, maintenance of the existing ones? Sure. So um, we have a pretty robust um, supply chain risk management department within NASA. As missions, we closely couple with them to make sure that when we have a, um, a roster of things that we need to purchase in order to, to build a ground station, everything from a fence to the computers to hardware software and everything in between, that we're constant lockstep with them, making sure that anything is purchased or procured for NASA is on an approved list. Um, and as we're going through the cycle, any notifications of any incidents with any of our vendors is clearly communicated so that you know we have instant information to make sure that what we have is um, of the best quality of product in order to implement at our ground stations. Because I imagine some of the products are custom made for NASA, fabricated, but others like PCs and racks and communications gear and all the rack type of equipment that is standard 
that must be something that it's tougher to get to that second and third tier of subcontractor. Yes, and that's why we rely so heavily on this particular department because um, part of what they do is working with industry partners, um, looking deeper into the second and third layers of um, the particular product that they're looking to purchase to make sure that we're getting um, exactly what we've asked for and that there's no compromise of the integrity along the supply chain way. And what about the physical security aspects of these? That might tie into the cyber Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, physical security is a a big component here at NASA. Um, We want to make sure that our our, um, guards, gates, and guns are are, uh, completely up to standard. Uh, We follow State Department rules and we follow NASA rules to make sure that um, the integrity of our equipment is always secure so folks don't have inadvertent access or purposeful access if they're not required to do so. Now, the Artemis program is one channel. How do you collaborate across NASA? Because there must be other facilities, other programs that have the exact same concerns. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So um, within NASA, you know, we have a a big mission community. So within the Artemis program, uh, there's the Space Communication Navigation Office. We provide the comm. There's SLS, Orion, Gateway. So all of these various components that build into the Artemis program collaborate usually on a weekly basis. Uh, We talk about the good, the bad, the ugly. So any challenges that we've had that particular week or any triumphs that we we've had. Um, It's the constant source of open communication between these various entities within the agency can make us much more small so we can have these open dialogues. And you mentioned during the panel, during the ACT-IAC event, that components from Mexico, which is a, can be a trusted partner, Mm -hmm. but may contain subcomponents that come from China. Is that necessarily bad? That is to say, you might not want a major processing or signal processing chip to come from China but maybe a capacitor or a resistor could come from China. Sure, 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 sure. So um, it's uh, China is not, you know, we don't bar purchasing equipment just from them as a, as a baseline. Um, there are definitely components in which we purchase from. Um, anything that doesn't have uh, memory or any, any particular piece of hardware that is critical to the, um, the success of the mission but doesn't, couldn't introduce any inadvertent risk. So it's always, it always goes back to buying down the risk of um, it, the, mis- the risk to the mission. And just in the general communications area, have you had issues that you're aware of where somehow a signal went astray or someone was listening in on what was going on that wasn't authorized? Um, not so much from a, a listening that wasn't authorized, but um, it, you know, every single federal agency has had some sort of cybersecurity issue. Um, it would be, I'd be uh, remiss to not say that the, absolutely everyone has faced uh, certain cybersecurity challenges, um, and we're no exception. Um, NASA's job, our mandate is is peaceful space exploration, so we're really leaning on the Department of Defense, Homeland Security, to provide us that extra bit of support and resources in order to make a much more robust program. And here's a question just from someone who likes watching flight radar or whatever that thing is called, where you can see all the planes flying in the world, you know, their destinations, when they departed, their tail numbers and all of this information. You know, late at night, it's fun to watch what's going on in the Mm -hmm. skies above the world. That information is ultimately coming from the government, from the FAA, and so that people that get it are not tapping into FAA systems, but Mm -hmm. it's put out there. Yeah. Does NASA have the same type of program where just to deter people that might want to amateurishly, say, break in to hear what's going on, just put out information that can be publicly made available about where's that thing orbiting, who's aboard? Sure, sure. So we have um, actually several websites that are dedicated to open source information, providing the public where our satellites are at any given moment. So um, 
curious. Folks, scientists can can take a look and, and see where any of our assets are at any given time. NASA prides itself in being open and honest and, and providing an educational resource for the public in order to be able to see where we're at any given day. Jenna Garrahy, Program Manager for Space Communications and Navigation at NASA, speaking during the ACT-IAC Emerging Technology Conference. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, like the revolving door, Defense Department ethics questions keep coming round and round. But first, this bill could compensate veterans exposed to radiation at a Nevada test range. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Tonopah Test Range is a classified spot in Nevada operated by the Defense and Energy Departments. It was once the site for nuclear materials testing. Many veterans who worked at Tonopah in later years claim exposure to residual radiation has caused a variety of health problems. Now, a bill from Nevada Congressman Mark Amadell would compensate these veterans. My next guest did much of the research and documentation of the radiation effects, and the bill is named for him. Air Force veteran David Crete joins me now. Mr. Crete, good to have you on. Good morning, Tom. Thank you for having me. And just briefly, what did you do for the Air Force and when at this Tonopah range? So at Tonopah, at the base at Tonopah, I was an Air Force security policeman, which basically I was a cop up there. We provided security, operational security for the F-117 stealth fighter. A lot of that work is classified to this day, too, isn't it? Correct. To get there, you had to have a top secret security clearance and the plane's out. So we get to talk about it, which is pretty cool. It's pretty cool the day you got to go home and tell your wife what you did. Sure. And at that time, people were not aware of the history of what had happened at Tonopah? Correct. We had no idea. And what had happened and what was the downrange effect of that? So Nevada, there's an area of the range called NTS, Nevada Test Site, where it's common knowledge that there were nuclear tests that took place 50s up through 92. What wasn't known is the amount of fallout that we had there, as well as right on the range, there was testing that had taken place. There was a series of tests called Roller Coaster, which took place right around where we worked and slept. These were explosions? Correct. There was a series of tests that were conducted by the U.S. and British government to look at two things. One, what would the effects of a dirty bomb be? And what would be the effects of an accidental detonation? In other words, not a nuclear explosion, but an explosion that would spread nuclear material. Right. So in some sense, was a more concentrated type of testing than might have been from a bomb test. Yeah, I like I don't know all the science behind it. I've learned a lot, but according to the Department of Energy, it spread plutonium all over the place. Their words was Tonopah test range is contaminated. All right. And what about the health effects? How did you discover this? What got you onto this whole trail here? The advent of Facebook allowed many of us to find one another because when you leave assignments like that, and based on the fact that it was in the 80s, there were no cell phones and emails and things like that. So you lost touch. We all found one another through Facebook. And starting in about 2015, we started having reunions. We would all get together once a year and still do. At the first one, the conversation was, you know, we're all getting old. We all have these health problems. And the first thing that came up was these tumors. And most guys' tumors are benign, but we have a lot of them. And we started doing research on it and found that the type of tumor we have has an occurrence rate of one in a thousand. Over half of us have these. 
that's pretty simple math. That's not normal. And we started going further and further. And we found out that there's a lot of health problems that a lot of our guys have already passed away because of these health problems. Some people have no effect. And some of us have kids that were born with birth defects as a result of our exposure. All right. And then there's also the fact that the Clinton administration had issued an executive order compensating Energy Department employees at that site for radiation-induced illnesses and bad effects, but not Defense Department people, correct? Correct. There was a bill called EOIPA. There was another bill called RICA. And then there was an executive order by Bill Clinton. And all of those dealt with everybody that had to do with anything out there, except for Department of Defense employees, military and contractors. We were all specifically exempted from the ability to receive benefit. We're speaking with David Crete. He's a former member of the Air Force's Security Police Squadron at the Tonopah Test Range in Nevada. And so then you were aware of this benefit for energy people, then thanks to the ability to connect with the high rate of incidence of radiation-related disease among your own members from DOD. What's the pathway from there to now a bill to compensate you and your colleagues? When we started doing this research about two years ago, we found out that the civilians were, one, being compensated, they'd received the medical stuff, and in fact, they had already proven that what we believe to be true, they proved it true. Then we started going down the path. What do we have to do? Because our roadblock is DOD admits the airplane was there. They admit the units were there, but they don't admit the people in the units. So if we go to file a claim, we can't prove exposure because they say we were never there. We're still to this day data mass. Our records are blank. And so we can't prove any exposure. So we're denied benefits. Your records are blank because of the secret nature of the work there? Correct. I guess you'd call that a catch-22. It's exactly what it is. And that's where our problem lies. And when we've gone to the Department of Defense before, when through the VA, because the VA then goes to the Department of Defense going, hey, these folks are claiming exposure to ionizing radiation and whatever else, and they have cancers and kids have birth defects and, like, I have scarred lungs. Department of Defense goes, not possible, they weren't there. But would not the VA treat you just as a veteran for whatever condition you might have anyway? They treat us. I get treated for things, but you can't get certain levels of benefit. I mean, there's guys that can't work because of their disabilities, also can't get VA disability as a result of it. Because it was not service-related in the eyes of the VA. Got it. According to Department of Defense, it wasn't service-related. But the coincidence is they have hundreds and hundreds of people that all lived in Vegas that were all data masked at the same time with the exact same story. And Department of Defense says it's a coincidence. Yeah. So now you have a congressman, Mark Amodell from Nevada, and you're still in Nevada yourself, correct? Correct. I live in Las Vegas. All right. And what convinced him? I showed him the evidence that I had procured through various sources, all of it public sources. And I went to him and I said, look, This is where we were. Here's our base. It's been acknowledged to be there. The bases that are on the Nevada test range have been acknowledged. And here's Department of Energy reports saying that Tonopah test range is contaminated with plutonium. I guess I'm trying to find the bridge to where you were there and the people you know to be there. How can you prove it at this point? There must be a record that exists somewhere. It's just not being released by the Defense Department. Correct. And that's what we have to get through. We have to get the Department of Defense to say 
that we were there. The problem that the Department of Defense has in doing that is they have to admit that this place is one contaminated and number two, they're still sending people there. Right. So it's almost like the burn pit situation as if they were still burning. Correct. And they're still sending people to take care of the burn pit. And that's become a presumed benefit, just like blue water napalm exposure and a number of other things in recent years that have become you know, presumed to be deserving of beneficiaries because that's what the law now says. Well, does the bill that is now before Congress, and gosh knows what kind of a chance it's going to have in the way Congress is now, does that also require the Defense Department to identify people that were there? Yes, that's exactly what we're asking is for them to say yes, that they were there and then to provide benefit for not only the military member, but like my son, my first son has neurofibromatosis. He was born with a tumor problem. That's a direct result of my exposure. And he grew up unable to get insurance. He has insurance now, but he's been faced his entire life with significant issues as a result, just because of me. An inherited problem almost because of your exposure, but the bill specifically would cause DOD to give up those records. Right. The bill's still in draft, but that's exactly what it's going to do. It's going to request that they give up those records. It's going to request the same benefit that the civilian DOE employees got for those family members that are affected. All we're asking for is the VA for a military member to recognize that we were there and did it and we have exposure. Got it. And do you have any sense of how many people are involved in numbers? Thousands, several thousand people. Because this was over decades. Correct. The initial military members that were stationed on the range go back to the 1950s and the U-2 project up to this day. There's people that drive out there, fly out there every day. David Crete is a former member of the Air Force's Security Police Squadron at the Tonopah Test Range, Nevada. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more about the pending bill at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, like the revolving door, Defense Department ethics questions keep coming round and round. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. A recent Senate Armed Services Subcommittee hearing raised questions of integrity and the so-called revolving door between industry and the Defense Department. The project on government oversight was among the witnesses, saying there's too much industrial influence on Pentagon decisions coming from former officers and high-level civilians. Here with a summary, POGO's government affairs manager, Dylan Hetler-Gaudet. Dylan, good to have you back. Hey, thank you, Tom. It's great to be back. And I thought the revolving door ethics issues were solved a long time ago, but apparently not. No, they weren't solved a long time ago, unfortunately. We still have a pretty pervasive and pernicious challenge around the revolving door and corporate and industry influence, particularly at the Pentagon, though I want to be clear, this is not only a Pentagon issue. This is something that affects broadly agency activities across the entire federal government. People who leave and go to industry do so under certain ethical restrictions that are in place and certain legal restrictions that are in place. So is your contention that even following the letter of whatever the regulations and the statutes are still results in conflicts of interest? That's correct. Yeah, a lot of the existing rules and restrictions are insufficient to the task. One other 
particularly frustrating thing specifically around the Pentagon is each NDAA cycle pretty much, maybe not everyone, but every couple of NDAA cycles, the Pentagon actually goes to Congress and tries to convince them to reduce and remove some of the restrictions and the rules that do exist already. NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, where all of this comes out to play every year. Yes, that's right. I'm sorry. I should try to refrain from the alphabet soup there. Uh, Yes, the NDAA is the annual defense policy bill where all of the top line spending levels are set. That's not actually where money is appropriated, though. That has to happen in the Appropriations Committee. But the top line levels are set and the policies are made. So it's a pretty critical time. And it ends up being somewhat of a feeding frenzy as far as the interest of defense industry players being advanced. And this is where the revolving door really rears its ugly head. Well, give us some recent examples of where this might have been manifest in Defense Department decisions. So one clear example is the F-35 program, which has not even come close to living up to its billing. And there have been hundreds of millions and billions of dollars already spent on the F-35, and it hasn't even met any of its initial testing requirements. It's basically an inoperable system at this point. It's just an extraordinarily expensive pilot program at this juncture, a prototype, if you will. But Each year, more money keeps being allocated to that particular boondoggle, and a lot of that has to do with the influence that the defense companies who are responsible for building that plane have when it comes to Congress and when it comes to the Pentagon's. Well, there have been a succession of program managers, typically from the Air Force, to oversee that program, and they have had resets and admonitions to industry, but apparently none of it has really had any fundamental effect. Yes, and part of that is a broader problem. The problem is the Pentagon. It's it's all over the place as far as people in Congress also not doing what they should be doing around making these responsible decisions. And also you have a revolving door issue between congressional staff and the very same defense companies that are at play here when it comes to the revolving door at the Pentagon. So it's all sort of intertwined and meshed, and it creates bad policy. It creates overspending. It creates waste, fraud, and abuse. And that's really why we're advocating for new rules and for beefing up existing rules around you know, corruption and integrity and the revolving door. And we'll get to those. I just wanted to ask about one more manifestation of this. I mean, the F-35 is ostensibly a new program and it could be fixed and we would have a great new fighter at some point in the future. But also your testimony cites the continuance of obsolete programs that even Absolutely, some the people... literal combat, if I think you're probably thinking of, yes. Well, that, yeah, and some of the, even I guess maybe the A-10 program, another Air Force jet... But the idea is that the Pentagon itself would like to get rid of these things, but somehow this industry revolving door complex keeps them alive at the expense of other programs. Yes. When it comes to the A-10, we actually take the view that we need to keep the A-10 until we've developed a suitable replacement. And the problem is right now we haven't yet developed a suitable replacement for that close air support capacity that the A-10 provides. And if you mothball a program and you don't have a suitable replacement already ready to go, then you're putting troops on the ground in real, real danger in any potential war theaters. But the A-10 is actually, I don't think, a very good example. But there are definitely examples of where Pentagon goes to Congress, says, we don't need any more of these destroyers. We don't need any more of these planes but Congress continues to plus them up and say, well, you're going to take them and you're going to like it. And then they have fewer of the platforms that they wish they had more of that are maybe don't have such great support. That's right. Obviously, you have opportunity cost. I mean, it does seem like there is somehow an infinite supply of money that we're able to throw every year at the Pentagon, but there are real opportunity costs there. Every hundred billion dollars you spend on X means there are a few hundred million you can't spend more wisely on Y. We are speaking with Dylan Hetler-Gaudet, the government affairs manager at the Project on Government Oversight. All right, so what should change here for the ultimate goal of spending to be more efficient and for decisions to be based more on merit? That's our goal here? Absolutely. But 
I say decision making needs to be more based on merit, and it also needs to be more based on strategy and not what's going to boost the profits of the Beltway Bandits in the current fiscal year. But as far as what we need to change, you mentioned earlier that there are some rules in place around the revolving door, specifically there are cooling off periods. There are some restrictions on what you can do when you leave the Pentagon and you try to seek employment in the private sector. We think those rules and restrictions need to be expanded to include a broader swath of people as they're leaving. Right now, they tend to be targeted specifically at acquisition and procurement officials, which is good. You certainly want them included in these restrictions, but the restrictions have to be broader because there is an entire chain of command where decisions are made you know, across the board, and you have to include a much larger universe of people to really be trying to get at that problem of industry capture and of the revolving door once people leave the Pentagon. So you need to expand who's covered. You need to restrict more of the kinds of places that people can go to once they leave the Pentagon. We also think there need to be some enhanced recusal requirements when people are coming into the Pentagon, because obviously at the other end of the revolving door, it swings both ways. It's people coming into government and it's people leaving government. You know, so we need those upfront restrictions and rules around what you can work on and who you can talk to when you enter government, but also where you can go to work and who you can speak to once you've left government. So those are basic things. We need to expand cooling off periods. Right now, you either have a one or a two year cooling off period, depending on what level of employment you're at when you leave the federal government. We think that should be expanded to a couple more years. We also think there need to be some rules around when you're at the Pentagon you know, you're actively employed there in some way or another, but there have to be rules around what kind of investments, what kind of financial entanglements you can have while you're serving in those roles. So right now there is a restriction where you can't be invested in any of the top 10 defense contractors. If you're an acquisition or procurement professional at the DOD, or if you're above a certain grade level, we think that needs to be expanded to the top 100 defense contractors. And it also needs to expand to include a broader number of people at the Pentagon. Well, I mean, general officers typically retire and they go on to board or think tanks, is there or should there be or any kind of distinction between what they do? For example, if you're on a board of a company, you may or may not be involved in decisions on sales and bids and award seeking, whereas if you become an operational executive as opposed to a board member, you might be involved in procurements and bid preparation. You know, I think it's reasonable to try to take an exacto knife to these problems and create reasonable thresholds. I think it's also important to remember, though, that a lot of what happens is a big company in the defense space will hire someone away who has a big name once they retired from the Pentagon. And there's still a bit of a cachet that is being cashed in on there, some some relationships that are being you know, exploited there in some ways. And we also need to really have true transparency around the types of conversations that are happening between a potential employee who's about to leave DOD and a prospective employer, because that can be a sort of indirect behind the scenes way that some kind of influence can be, you know, peddled, you know, without there being a direct causal relationship between a particular contract, you know, or an award or a procurement decision. But it's still problematic because it can have an impact on how decisions are made at DOD if someone you know, has an eye toward what's going to happen next, like what their next job going to be. And they may be a little bit preferential toward whoever that prospective employer is going to be. And if people are benefiting from this in the congressional branch and the executive branch, who's going to be behind these ideas? Yeah, that that is the uh, $850 billion question there, Tom. It is hard to get people to really buy in on this in a broad-based way because you're right. There are so many people who are at the trough, you know, feeding from this particular toxic cocktail of influence and corporate capture. And, you know, there's just a lot of money to be made, a lot of money to be had, a lot of, you know, power to be wielded here. So it is definitely an uphill battle. But we are, you know, we are always here. We've been here since the 80s, basically crying out for the same kinds of reforms. We've had some successes here and there, some 
incremental progress, but um, I'm not going to lie to you and tell you it's going to be easy uh, because we are up against the full might and force of the military-industrial congressional complex, for sure. All right. It's why we keep reading the book of Jeremiah. Dylan hetler Gaudet is Government Affairs Manager at the Project on Government Oversight. As always, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a link to his testimony at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. A bipartisan group of senior senators is pushing for a major overhaul of the government's systems for classifying information. The new legislation aims to curtail what they say is an overclassification problem and make records easier to declassify. The bill includes a new 25-year time limit on classification, and agencies who classify too many records could face financial penalties. We get details from Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Senators Mark Warner, John Cornyn, Ron Wyden, and Jerry Moran introduced two separate pieces of legislation yesterday that they say would make long overdue changes to the classification system. It's meant to clamp down on overclassification, create more centralized governance over federal agencies' classification procedures, and also shore up agencies' insider threat programs. Warner is chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee. We've got a Byzantine, bizarre, bureaucratic system that has not kept up with the times, has not moved at all to digitalization. So consequently, we continue to vastly overclassify huge amounts of information, while at the same time not fully protecting our nation's most important secrets. We, matter of fact, so overclassify that our military has said that that level of overclassification leads to a hindrance of working smoothly with our allies around the world. And because we've got so many records that are viewed as classified, With that much overclassification, that has also led to a simultaneous effort to actually require more people to get clearances. Truth is, we're now over 4 million people in America with security clearances. And that combination of overclassification and then too many people having clearances... um, has led us to this problem. The first bill, the Classification Reform Act, is meant to raise the bar on what information can be classified in the first place. Agencies would need to explicitly determine that the risk to national security outweighs the public's right to know about government activities before they classify information. It would also make the Director of National Intelligence the government's executive agent for both classification and declassification. Backers argue that right now there's no single authority in charge of the overall system, leaving agencies to set their own rules and often classify money mundane documents by default. And to reduce the chances of that happening, the bill also creates what its sponsors call a tax on agencies who classify too much. Each agency would pay into a working capital fund to pay for programs to declassify existing documents, but the agencies who classify the most new records each year would also pay the most. Wyden says one goal of the new fund is to modernize the technologies agencies use for declassification. Even after these records no longer meet the requirements for classification, They just keep piling up and piling up and never see the light of day. Sometimes the agencies can't find the records. Sometimes they are hampered by the fact that the systems don't talk to each other. The result is, in 2023, documents actually have to be printed out and walked around town, walked around town to get everybody's (coughs) sign-off before they're declassified. So we're not even in the right century with respect to technology on these kind of crucial issues. The four of us believe this is a fixable problem. 
You got to invest, obviously, in technological modernization. And having somebody in this whole labyrinth of agencies has to make sure these changes uh, get made across the federal government. There's a technology modernization aspect to the second bill, too. The Sensible Classification Act would order agencies to converge on a single federated and integrated IT solution to handle classification and declassification decisions. Agencies would also have to furnish studies on how many of their positions require security clearances and justify those numbers. Cornyn says the idea is to reduce the amount of information the government produces with classified markings and reserved secret and top-secret labels for information that really does need to be protected. Theoretically, if that's the case, fewer people will actually need clearances that give them access to genuine secrets that they have no need to know. Our democracy, our ability to govern ourselves, depends on the public getting access to information about what our government is doing and what government officials are doing. And unfortunately, the all-too-human instinct uh, to classify information, which could potentially be embarrassing or uh, jeopardizing to one's uh, advancement in their career, is just, like I said, a natural human instinct. And and four million people potentially have a right to get access to something. To me, it seems like it's hardly a secret. I think it's really important that we uh, look at our process and make sure that only those truly necessary bits of information are kept in a classified setting and that otherwise that the public's right to know is supported and that the political accountability that our democracy depends on is uh, sort of returned to the process. The legislation would also add funding to the existing Public Interest Declassification Board. That board, in turn, would be an official advisor to the Director of National Intelligence as he or she takes on the role of setting government-wide classification and declassification policies. The reforms the new bills seek have been under discussion by members of the Intelligence Committee for years, but Moran says the senators think the legislation they've come up with stands a genuine chance of passage. In today's environment... It is too great of a risk to have a circumstance in which so much information is classified that we fail to do the job of protecting the information that should be classified. And we've seen it too many times, and we've seen it most recently within the last month. And in this current circumstance, I don't think the four of us are here in any way that we are suggesting we have a messaging bill and that our goal was to get press from you this morning so we could show our constituents that we're doing something. This is a piece of legislation that can become law and is desperately needed. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.